So many people are looking to live happier, more stress-free lives. We provide interviews from mental health experts across various fields because you know finding quality information isn't always easy. Let's find more sanity together. On today's episode, Dr. Robert Hyman talks about mindfulness for improving mental health. Dr. Hyman is a clinical psychologist at the renowned Beck Institute, where he regularly integrates mindfulness into therapy. During his doctoral training, he developed two mindfulness-focused stress reduction programs. He has co-authored book chapters on mindfulness, cognitive therapy, and anxiety. Beyond treating patients, he is an instructor at workshops and provides consultation and supervision for therapists looking to learn or improve their skills in cognitive behavioral therapy. Additionally, he collaborates on research to determine effective ways for organizations and therapists to adopt and be trained in cognitive behavioral therapy. Now on to the interview. All right, Rob, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, no problem. Um, as you probably know, and we discussed before, uh, when I start off the show, I ask people their approach to treatment and what treatment means to them. So I'm asking you that question now. My approach is uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Basically, that means a lot of our problems aren't necessarily the situations that we're in, but it's our interpretation of them. So when I'm going over this with clients, I'll use a texting example. So I'll say, let's say that you texted a friend or like a family member, it's been five hours, you haven't heard back. What kind of things would be going through your mind? So, you know, go for it. What do you think? Um, I, I can imagine some people think uh, uh, they're mad at me. Maybe they're okay. in an accident. So like, I would stop at one interpretation and say, okay, so if they're mad at you, like, what would you be feeling? Um, I, I would be scared. Yeah. Worried. What, uh, what could be another interpretation there? Um, another interpretation as to why they didn't answer. They, they could yeah. be busy or okay, they, they might be, be trying to safe driving. If, if you think they're busy, like what's, what do you feel? Be feeling? Eh, I mean, just normal. Yeah. Pretty neutral. Anything else? Um, I would probably just move on and just assume that they would just call me later. Yeah. So the idea is it's the same situation, you know, haven't heard back. It's been about five hours, but if you tell yourself they're mad at me, you know, there might be some anxiety there, maybe some confusion. But if you think, well, they're just busy, you're going to feel pretty neutral. So that's just the cognitive model, which is what CBT is based on. The, the way we teach it at the Beck Institute, though, is like people think if you're doing CBT, all you're doing is just evaluating thoughts. You're just kind of getting some behavioral interventions, like behavioral activation, stuff like that. But the way we teach it is it's CBT as long as you're just doing therapy within a cognitive framework, which means you're conceptualizing your client according to what we call the cognitive conceptualization. So I'm going to conceptualize my client based on their belief systems, based on how they cope with things, how they behave when certain beliefs are active or inactive. And within that, I'm going to use strategies from any kind of orientation. So I don't necessarily need to only use cognitive or behavioral strategies, which is where mindfulness comes in, where you know my work in grad school was mainly in mindfulness. So I take a lot of that into CBT, but it's not like a standard CBT strategy. Yeah. And um, 
you, you know, when I've done some of these Beck trainings, you were the mindfulness guy teaching a lot of the mindfulness in a lot of these courses. And yeah. I'm pretty sure it was this last year at ABCT, the psychology conference that you had given a, how did, how to integrate mindfulness within CBT. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm the, the mindfulness guy. The mindfulness guy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So like, what is mindfulness such like a hot topic now? People are talking about it. There's apps, there's headspace, there's calm. What is mindfulness? Mindfulness itself, I mean, there's been like countless definitions of it, you know, over time, it's like 3000 ish years old. The main definition is kind of like two components to it. So the first component is just it's a focus on present moment experiences. And then with that present moment focus, there's a quality of the focus, and it's being accepting and non judgmental towards your experiences. So like, it's people tend to think of mindfulness more of an internally focused thing where it's, you know, I'm going to notice my emotions and I'm going to be accepting of them. I'm going to notice what thoughts are showing up and, you know, treat them like leaves on a stream, but it's also to the external environment. So it's taking note of what's going on moment to moment in front of you. Like for me, one of my, uh, me at my best is mowing the lawn. So that's my mindful (laughs) experience where, you know, I have a two and a three-year-old here, so I get a little break, like it's kind of me time. And I'm just focused on, you know, going row after row, noticing how it feels being outside, you know, the sun shining when at least it was when I mowed the lawn last time. But it's just being really focused in the moment, not kind of in my head analyzing anything, thinking about what I have to do afterwards. It's just, okay, let me just focus on what I'm doing right here, right now, just noticing what I'm experiencing. Okay. And I love that you brought up this uh, lawnmower example, because I think when a lot of people uh, think about mindfulness, they think about doing the apps and sitting there and focusing on their breath for people that have done it or noticing different, different uh, areas in their body, like tension or feelings in their, their hands or going all the way from the head down to the toes. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you're talking about a, a different type of mindfulness here where you're actually being active and you're actually being outside of the body. Yeah. So people think of mindfulness as the meditation piece. So it's, I'm going to do mindfulness. I'm going to spend five, 10, 15, an hour just focusing on my breath. So I'm going to close my eyes. I'm going to sit in a quiet space and I'm just going to notice what it feels like to breathe and kind of redirect my attention whenever my mind goes somewhere else. So that that's what we call formal mindfulness meditation. And People also, they'll see, yeah, like they'll feel anxious, they'll be feeling a little stressed about something and say, okay, I need to use my mindfulness app now. So I'm going to turn on my app, I'm going to take this five minutes or whatever the amount of time it is, and I'm going to listen to the meditation because that's going to calm me down. But that's only part of mindfulness. So that's the formal piece. There's also informal mindfulness. Informal is just taking the mindfulness principles and applying them to your day to day experience. So that's the mowing the lawn piece. So let's say, um, like, I mean, my kids are always doing things to purposely annoy me. So, uh, like my youngest, my, I know my older one today, uh, stuck her tongue out and said I was a bad daddy. So for me, you know, like right to the heart. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. What'd you do? I'm I'm doing my best here. (laughs) (laughs) So like, I would have that experience. And then instead of just like in my head analyzing, like, oh, how dare she say that? 
you know, it's like she's three years old. Of course, she's going to say like that because you know, it was because I beat her in Candyland. Oh, <laughs> I mean, I take my Candyland pretty seriously, and I'm a very skilled player, so I just really, you know, beat her up pretty good. Do you take but, shoots and ladders as seriously as Candyland? Uh, shoots and ladders is kind of amateurish. Ooh, like, yeah. oh, okay. So it's like the checkers, <laughs> checkers, the chess. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. But it's like, I can notice like the emotional experience showing up there. And it wasn't like, okay, you know, April, give me a few minutes here. I got to go to the other room. I got to close my eyes. I got to focus on breathing. No, it's like, okay, I can notice feeling upset. I can notice different thoughts about what she said. And then instead of getting so caught up in them, it's just taking the mindfulness approach to that experience of like, okay, I can notice thoughts about, you know, really how it felt bad that she said that to me about like how I try my best. And, you know, instead of then further like getting into it, it's just, okay, I can just notice those. Let me just get, get back to playing this game with her and I can feel upset without getting so overwhelmed by it, just kind of acknowledging it and letting it be there. So do you need this formal mindfulness practice then? Cause you, you talk about the informal and the formal. So there's a few fields of thought on this. So there's something called acceptance and commitment therapy, where mindfulness is part of that treatment. What they would say is you don't need formal mindfulness. You can learn mindfulness through any kind of short experiential exercise. You can learn mindfulness through, just through using metaphors versus like a mindfulness-based cognitive therapy or mindfulness-based stress reduction would say the meditations are the scaffolding of your mindfulness experience and kind of learning mindfulness. So I actually, that was my, um, my dissertation question actually, because oh. they're like, okay, these people say it's needed. These people say it's not, let's figure this out. So I did, I made two interventions of like a mindfulness stress reduction for students. And I actually started off doing it just for law students. And then I tried to recruit them and they're like, oh man, we're too busy. We're too stressed. We can't do it. <laughs> so I had to expand it to everybody. But with the two interventions, it was like the exact same material content wise, but in one, they learned mindfulness through ex like brief experiential exercises, metaphors, versus the other one used the formal meditations. And for the outcome, the, the group using the formal meditations actually did better. And from my experience teaching both of those groups, it, it seemed like, you know, mindfulness has been called a simple concept that's really difficult to describe. So it's really difficult to learn it too. And you really can learn it better through the meditation experience versus using like a random metaphor or just doing a real quick exercise. So it seemed like just from the qualitative aspect of the study that the participants who learned it through the meditations really picked it up a lot faster and they didn't have so many questions about it. Um, and another thing is it when they did the meditations every day, cause that was part of the homework, it served as a reminder to use mindfulness in general in their lives. And I, and they said like, you know, I, I just remembered to practice and I remember to, I remember to bring it into my life because I was practicing every day versus the other group would say, you know, I, I learned some really good skills, you know, mindfulness is really important. I liked it a lot, but I would forget to bring it into my day-to-day -day experience with the informal piece. And so what does that uh, actually look like bringing it 
into your everyday in the informal piece? I know you brought up the lawnmower, but is there other examples that you give for people? A good one is really like, you know, back in the good old days when you would go to your, go to your office to work could be, you know, for you being in New York, it could be getting off the subway and walking to the office. So I'm guessing when, like what's going through your mind when you're walking to the office, getting off the subway. Oh, I'm thinking about the work that I have to do, my schedule being on time. Uh Uh-huh. Exactly. So mindfulness in that experience would just be noticing where you're walking. You can notice how it feels like your feet against the ground, um, kind of moment to moment, what your movement feels like. So instead of being in your head, projecting yourself to the future, what the day is going to be like, it's just taking you back, noticing what's in front of you in the moment and just noticing what's going on with you, like emotionally, uh, cognitively. Okay. And that's the, so you're describing there, that's like the being in the present moment that you you talk about two principles. That's being in the present moment. So being Mm -hmm. aware of your physical sensations, your emotions, uh, the thoughts that you're having, and then also, um, your surroundings. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that second piece, it's, you know, let's say you start thinking about, um, like a client who's particularly challenging and then you start to feel stressed. So the idea would be noticing that stress reaction. And then instead of trying to control it in some way or having like a negative evaluation of it, like, Oh, I don't want to start my day feeling like this. I got to kind of calm myself down and get going. It's more just noticing and letting it be there, not trying to control it, just letting it kind of fluctuate on its own. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up control because I feel like that's probably a third component here. So there was like being non-judgmental, being present focused, and then also being accepting. Uh, so mm-hmm. what does it actually mean to be accepting in, in mindfulness? So a lot of people kind of get confused and think the accepting piece is accepting your circumstances. So Oh, like I'm in a really bad relationship. Uh, you know, uh, well, I have to be accepting of it. Like I can't do anything. I shouldn't try to control this, but it, it's more of the internal things. So for the external stuff, do what you can problem solve, try to make productive changes. But for the internal things, particularly thoughts, emotions, and sensations, it's getting out of that struggle with them. So I have a whole bunch of finger traps, you know, like finger traps mm-hmm. in my office. So I'll, I'll give it one to a client you know, put it on and say, you know, what happens when you try to really struggle to get out of this? Well, the more you struggle, the more caught up in it you get. So it's the same with thoughts, emotions, and sensations. We notice it. If we don't want it to be there, it tends to get us more caught up in it. And if, if you want to think of like a processing kind of scenario there, let's say anxiety, because a lot of people with anxiety disorders have fears of anxiety itself. So they'll notice anxiety showing up and maybe they have a belief that it's going to cause me to lose control. So the minute it shows up, you know, where do you think their focus goes? It goes right to the anxiety because they consider it a threat. And if it's threatening, then they have to focus on it. When they focus on it, then it seems subjectively more intense. So if then there's the struggle of like, I got to make this go away, I can't handle this. All that happens is the focus is going to continue to be on the anxiety, they're going to be telling themselves things about it that are going to fuel it even further. And they just kind of spiral and spiral and spiral. So for the acceptance piece, it's noticing what the experience feels like, and really just letting it be there. And like, I use the 
when I do meditations or kind of describe this to clients, I'll say it's kind of like watching a movie. So when you watch a movie, you're sitting back, you're just watching what happens on the screen. You're not changing what's happening scene to scene. You're just observing as it progresses over time. So it's that same idea with our thoughts, with our emotions, sensations. It's noticing it, but just kind of sitting back and letting it unfold on its own without trying to get involved and manipulate it at all. Mm-hmm. And what tends to happen there is, so if you, you notice that anxiety and you say, okay, it's here, I can let it be here, your attention is naturally going to go back to whatever is the task at hand, whatever you're doing. And as long as what you're doing isn't anxiety provoking, that anxiety then goes down because you don't need it anymore. You actually linked beautifully to my next question where I was going to go into redirection. That's what I was um, going for. Oh, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so one part of the training we do in mindfulness if, um, is when you're, when you get distracted, it's learning how to, how to redirect and it teaches you that skill to redirect your attention with more control of where you want it to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, where is it the time to redirect off of the distress that you're having? So you say that you're working and you're distressed and then you use that skill to redirect versus just sitting in it, noticing it, and then naturally redirecting once, once the emotion lessens? Ah, good question. For that, I would say it really depends on the client. So, you know, you mentioned like there's the, all the mindfulness kind of apps and one, I really don't recommend any of those for clients. I've had a bunch of clients who really like headspace and calm. I know my wife really likes headspace, but when I'm working with someone, I want to individualize it to them particularly. So when I'm doing some kind of mindfulness exercise, the instructions I'm giving are really individualized. And if I have a client who has really poor emotional awareness, so think of someone who growing up, you know, they had a, let's say, stereotypical father who was emotionally cold, like, you know, they would feel upset and, hey, you shouldn't feel this way, stop feeling that way. Maybe some like invalidating uh, mother. So they learn that, I shouldn't have certain emotions and I need to distract someone when they show up. For those clients, they tend to say, my emotion goes from zero to a hundred. Like there's no in between. It's either not there or it's there to a really crazy intense level. So for those clients, I might want to start off of really notice the experience, kind of sit with it to help them notice really fine distinctions instead of just not present or extremely present. So for them, it might be sitting with it, noticing it, kind of being able to feel what it feels like. What are the differences when it gets more intense versus when it's low intense? What about that mid-level? Versus if I have a client who has good emotion regulation and it's just stuck in their head all the time, that's someone who I'm not going to have them sit with it for a long period of time. I'm just going to have them notice when they're in their head, maybe revving up the anxiety, depression, whatever the emotion is, and then just kind of like gently bring it back to what's going on in the here and now. So it really just depends on the client. Yeah, and what you focus on in, in mindfulness, so what you, what you practice, you tend to become more aware of. Am I right? There? Exactly, yeah. Um, so what are the different types of mindfulness uh, that are out there and what? And by doing those mindfulness, what will it make you be more in tune with? You can really do mindfulness of anything. So typically with... Uh, mindfulness meditation, there's some kind of central object that's the focus of attention. So you can do a mindfulness of sounds where you just notice sounds. You can do a mindfulness of emotions. You can do a mindfulness of sensations. You can do mindfulness of thoughts. 
you can do mindfulness of like external objects. So the content can really be anything. In terms of what I do, I practice maybe kind of like three main ones. So one would be a mindfulness of thoughts where people notice their thoughts. And then it's typically redirecting attention to breathing because that's something that's always going to be there. And, you know, if it's not there, you got more important things to worry about than being mindful. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) So like, that's the standard one I think most people know. Um, And then I'll also do a mindfulness to refocus more externally. And this is for a lot of people who kind of are caught up in their heads all the time. So that when they notice themselves really internally focused, it just can bring them back out to the present moment externally. And then another main one I do is just a mindfulness of emotions and sensations because so many of us have a fear of emotion and they don't like certain emotions where um, I think I heard this from Bob Leahy, but he says he doesn't want clients to get rid of emotion. He just wants to teach clients to be willing to experience all emotions. So I take that same approach. So if a client has this emotional fear, I want them to be able to notice it and just let it be there. So it would be getting that emotion going and really just focusing on how it feels in their body while again, just kind of letting it be there, not trying to control it at all. So those are, those are really the three main I do. You can also do mindfulness to enhance self-compassion and they have a bunch of different meditations you can do for that as well. And what, what is mindfulness for self-compassion? The standard one is something called a loving kindness meditation. So it's trying to imagine different people, like for instance, someone you really care about. And as you imagine them, they usually have you focus like where your heart is just because we tend to associate love with hearts. Mm -hmm. So it's like noticing your chest, your heart, kind of like feel the warmth with that sense of compassion towards this person. And then you try to kind of have it grow and grow. And then you start to imagine an image of yourself. And as you imagine that image of yourself, you try to generate that same kind of warmth and compassion and sense of love for yourself as you would for other people. Because we tend to you know, be really caring for other people, but we're pretty hard on ourselves. Like one thing I'll ask a lot of my clients who are really self-critical is I'll say, let's imagine you go through the next day talking to other people in the same way you talk to yourself. Like how would that turn out? Yeah, probably not too well. We are really our worst critics many times. Oh yeah. You know, walk around like, ah, you're what's wrong with you? You're so dumb. Yeah. <laughs> like, can't do anything. Right? You're what are you wearing? Why'd you choose to do that? Why'd you say that? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, I think, I think that's a great, a great point of view, a great way to help people see how mean they're being to themselves. Oh yeah. 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 So the first three, would, do you prescribe all three of those types of mindfulness to every patient or do you tailor that? Like I would imagine somebody, somebody with panic disorder, I'm assuming you'd want to help them pull themselves out of the body. Actually, for panic disorder, I want them to fully experience it without distraction and kind of sit with it. Mm. Because, you know, all panic disorder is, it's, it's a fear of sensations. And if you try to avoid them, then it just kind of perpetuates that fear because you don't learn the true dangerousness of them. So for panic disorder, I'm going to try to get them as panicky and anxious as possible in session. And then I'm going to say, okay, I want you to close your eyes, describe where you're feeling this. And I want you to just fully focus on it and let it be there because it serves as an exposure exercise. It's just an emotion exposure. 
But to your question of like, do I use the same three with everyone? No. Some clients, I don't use mindfulness at all. Um, so I, I get a lot of people who come in and maybe they've read my bio and say, hey, I saw that one of the things you do is mindfulness. Mindfulness is horrible. It's like, it's pointless. I'm not doing that junk. I was like, okay, go with me. <laughs> yeah, all right. Yeah. Other people like... You know, if they're if they're really caught up in their head, I'll probably do some kind of mindfulness of thoughts. But they may have no problems in terms of experiencing and regulating emotions, so I don't have to do the emotion regulation piece. Whereas other people, they may be fine in terms of like not being in their head all the time, but they may have a strong fear of emotion. So then I just do that. Some people I might just do some self compassion work because they're really hard on themselves and don't really need much else. So it's really individualized. I don't have like a standard, okay, in this session, we're going to focus on this mindfulness and we're going to move on to this and this. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned the the term exposure and for people that don't know, um, well, actually I'll let you describe it. Uh, how, what would you describe exposure as? Exposure is just being in the presence of some kind of feared experience that you avoid. So for Panic disorder clients are constantly trying to avoid certain sensations. Um, like one of my clients, his panic attacks start with his heart racing. So then he stopped going to the gym because when he goes to the gym, his heart starts to race. So it's taking what someone fears and what they avoid and putting them in those situations or having them in contact with those experiences. So one of my clients is, uh, has PTSD. And one of the things she fears is the memory of the trauma. So she's constantly trying to get that out of her mind, distract from it. She doesn't want to relive the experience again. So part of the exposures with her is to have her relive that memory from beginning to end. And like a metaphor I use is, you know, the first time you watch a really scary movie, how scared are you going to be? What about the 20th time? So what we have to do is just kind of repeat it over and over until this image just seems boring. And then there's also exposure. Like with ex most people think of with exposure is the external exposure. So like my same panic attack uh, client, he also has had multiple panic attacks while driving, particularly over bridges. So one of the things I have him do is just drive over bridges that he fears because he would normally avoid them and kind of go a different route that didn't have a bridge. But the whole idea of exposure is we have these fears because we have maladaptive beliefs where we're typically either overestimating threat or we're underestimating our ability to cope with whatever the experience is. So you can think of the whole point of exposures as let's put you in contact with this experience to have that learning be corrected. So that's all it is. And then you use the mindfulness to enhance it. So they're actually being present and really experiencing while doing the exposure. Exactly. So there's something called inhibitory learning, where one of the things they found is being fully aware of your emotional experience while you're going through the exposure has an added benefit. And the way I like to think of that is, most people fear anxiety during the exposure. So like, let's say a social anxiety client will have a fear that if I'm anxious, my mind's going to go blank, I'm not going to know what to say. So then if they do the exposure, and they're trying to distract from anxiety, afterwards, they're just going to tell themselves, well, you know, the really bad things didn't happen, my mind didn't go blank. 
just because I didn't notice the anxiety. So I want the client's anxiety to be really heightened because I want that learning to happen as well, where they learn they can tolerate it during the exposure and that the anxiety itself doesn't cause these catastrophic events to happen. Okay. And then, uh, you know, that other component where you're talking about redirection, using the redirection, that's more so for ruminating or spinning on thoughts over and over again. That's where you mostly use that technique. Exactly. Yeah. So with worry and rumination, or it could be self-criticism too, you know, it's, you have like some initial kind of thought that just pops up there and then you take that and then just kind of loop it and think more into it. So with the redirection piece, it's noticing when you're in your head about it and then just kind of redirecting back typically to what's either in front of you, or you can just focus on a few breaths as a way to cut off that process. Mm. And in, in oftentimes when I talk about exposure, I talk about approach, like the opposite of, of avoiding and voiding is the opposite of doing exposure mm-hmm. or approach. Is there a risk of people using mindfulness as an avoidance technique and actually maintaining or increasing their anxiety? Definitely. I think a lot of people use mindfulness as avoidance. So a lot of people will, you know, they'll come into me and say, Hey, I've had a really good experience with mindfulness. So that's something I want to do in our therapy as well. So I'll say, okay, so how do you use mindfulness? And they might respond with something like, when I get really anxious, what I do is I just focus on breathing that really helps to like get rid of it. So they're using mindfulness as a way to get rid of emotion, which is exactly what I don't want. I don't want clients to try to control emotion. I usually tell them, we can't control emotion at will. And if we could, then I'd be out of a job. So trying to control it, they're, they're using the mindfulness for that purpose. So they're like, okay, I'm going to focus on breathing. And if I can focus on breathing, I'm going to be distracted from the anxiety or the depression, whichever it is. And then I'm going to feel better. But all you're doing is you're avoiding more. So I have to, a lot of times, just provide education about mindfulness. And then I do my mindfulness exercises different than most people where I try to get the process going before I actually go into the mindfulness. So yeah, people use it as avoidance all the time. And for like the cognitive part of it, you don't want people to try to like not have thoughts. Like a simple exercise I'll do with clients is say something like, for the next two minutes, you can think about whatever you want to think about, but I don't want you to think about a blue giraffe. So like anything you can, blue giraffe, don't think about it at all. That's funny. I do pink elephant. I, I say pink yeah. elephant. That's funny that you do blue giraffe. I, now I'm thinking of a blue giraffe and a pink elephant while I'm trying not to think about them. Yeah, then a white bear shows up. <laughs> yeah, but now I got a whole, I got <laughs> exactly. a whole farm. You know, they're having a good, good grand old time and this is a little lunch <laughs> together. But um, so if you have clients try not to think about something, then what they have to do is keep on reminding themselves what they're not thinking about, which then shows it, makes it come up more often. And then with that, because you don't want to think about it, you have kind of like a negative emotional reaction when it shows up because you're like, oh, it's happened again. So when I'm giving my instructions for most clients, when I'm doing like a mindfulness of thoughts, I'll make sure to include in them, I don't want you to try to push thoughts away or try to ignore them or distract from them. I'll usually say something like, I want, if it's a mindfulness of the breath, I'll say, just let your main focus be on breathing, all the sensations involved in breathing. 
And in the back of your mind, you're going to notice thoughts there. You don't have to try to control them or force them away or not think about them. Just kind of notice them as background noise coming and going on their own. So like I, I try to be really explicit in my instructions to help clients not use it as an avoidance strategy and trying to like control these experiences that are outside of our control. Yeah, and then you actually do a distress induction um, before doing the mindfulness. Can you tell us about that and why you do that? Yeah, I mean, my goal in therapy is to make clients feel as horrible as possible. So every session, I just want to, you know, make them feel really distressed. Feeling distressed right now talking to me? Uh, actually, I, you have a very calming presence. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but... But yeah, yeah, just to your point, like helping people feel their distress and talk about difficult things and feel that emotion is is a necessary step in order to feel better over time. Yeah. And with like with the induction piece, that's something I just developed on my own because what I found is I would teach clients mindfulness in the session. And typically in the session, while you're going over mindfulness, they feel fine. So I would teach clients mindfulness in session. They would say to me, hey, that was a really great experience. That was very helpful. And I'd say, okay, so the idea is you practice it every day formally. I typically start off at five minutes. The research shows the amount of time meditating really doesn't make that much of a difference. So I'll do five minutes because it's manageable for most people. And then you do it informally as well, which means that you notice the experience, you were accepting of it, and whatever kind of practice we did if it's thoughts it's okay notice you're in your head and then gently bring that attention back to whatever you're doing in the moment or if it's the emotion just notice that kind of initial negative reaction to the emotion and just kind of let it be there watch it like a movie as you continue doing what you're doing and i would find that clients would really like it in session they'd come back the next week and say you know what like it was really helpful in session but it just didn't work when I was really distressed trying to deal with it differently or trying to have that different relationship to the experiences. So, you know, what I thought about that is it's really, you have to learn it in the same state and you have to get the same processes going because if you don't, that learning is not going to generalize to the experiences when the client's actually going to use it. So that's why, for instance, for like, um, think of like a worry, a client who worries a ton. What I'm going to do is I'm going to get them worrying about something they're currently worried about. I'll have them close their eyes to say, okay, let's get worrying. Um, you don't have to say it out loud, but just kind of get that process going. Then I'm going to check in with their emotional experience. You know, Zero to 10, how intense is anxiety right now? Because I want to make sure they got the process going pretty good. And then once anxiety is up there and, they're, and I ask them if they're worrying, they're like, yeah, it's really going on in my head. Then I'm going to transition them to the mindfulness. And I will go through the whole meditation. And afterwards, I'm going to check in with their emotional state. And then I'm going to also check in about beliefs that keep the processes going. So that's another big issue with that I have like with meditation apps and how most people teach mindfulness. They teach mindfulness as this freestanding strategy that they kind of applies a panacea. It's like a cure-all. Hey, like you're having this problem, mindfulness. You're having that mm -hmm. problem, mindfulness. Great. Yeah, download an app, go to town on it. But for something like worry, what keeps worry going is positive and negative beliefs about worry. So positive beliefs are that it's helpful in some way. 
if I worry, then I'm going to prevent some kind of catastrophic outcome. It's going to prepare me in case it actually does happen. And then for negative beliefs, it's the idea that it's uncontrollable. And that's kind of the main one. So you can think if a client has a random thought about some kind of future-related event they're anxious about, then they start worrying at first because they think it's helpful. And then once they start worrying, they think it's uncontrollable, which causes them to keep on going as well. So what I can do with that meditation, I can do the induction first, get the process going. And then afterwards, I'm going to ask them, what do they notice? What happened? And I'm going to specifically say, were you able to kind of take the focus away from the worry, let go of it, and kind of stop that process? And for the vast majority, the answer is yes. So then I can go into, so what's that say about this idea that worry is uncontrollable? Because I'm going to test out their beliefs about the processes through the meditation itself, instead of just doing a freestanding, oh, you're worried? Here's some mindfulness. Because if you don't get at the beliefs, it's not going to be that effective. Mm-hmm. And then you would do additional intervention to work on that first piece that you said of, of it helps with preparedness, like a behavioral experiment exactly. of if you don't worry um, and let's see what happens if, if everything falls apart or not and see if you actually need the worry or some other technique. No, exactly. Yeah. So like I'll have a client who has a few different things they're worried about happening in the near future and I'll say, okay, let's learn mindfulness and Use your mindfulness strategies to reduce worry about this one topic. For this other topic, go to town, worry all you want about it. And let's see if there's any difference in the outcome between these two things. Mm. Um, so one question I get a lot is, how do I know that I'm doing mindfulness? How do I know that, this, that I'm doing mindfulness while I mentioned? How do I know if I'm doing it right? Yeah, that's, that's a common one. Um, a lot of people will go with like the really cheesy response to that and say, well, the fact that you're aware says you're doing it right. Or they'll say like, there is no right way to do it. I tend to be more concrete because if you're vague with people about a vague concept, it just kind of confuses them and then they get mad at you. So I'd say you're doing it right when you're noticing these experiences, when you're allowing them to happen, and when you're able to kind of redirect back to whatever the experience is, whether it's breathing, whether it's what's going on in front of you. So kind of the opposite of what we don't want them to be doing, which is either avoiding, trying to control, or like getting stuck in their head analyzing. And what actually may, and and I know we talked about the experience piece where if you're actually experiencing what's going on, it helps you um, uh, more adaptively uh, process it and, and, and heal. But are there other components about how mindfulness helps people have more uh, healthier psychological functioning? With any kind of problem, you can think of it just as a habit. So if you have some kind of issue, it's probably been going on for a while. So when you're doing the same thing over and over again, you start to do it habitually and you do it without awareness. So the way I think of mindfulness is the first piece is it just brings awareness to whatever this habitual pattern is because you need awareness in order to have some kind of change. And then once you have awareness, you can do any kind of number of interventions there where, you know, the mindfulness itself can be an intervention to disrupt the process. Um, But really, it's just, I think of awareness, and then it's having a different relationship to experience. So it's, it's not trying to control them or change them. It's just having a different relationship to them. 
Yeah, I can't and when remember you, what, the, what the question you had was. No, no. I would just, I basically, why does mindfulness help people? Basically, oh, okay. so one of them was feeling the experience. The other one, I think you had said before, is that when you try and push emotion out or control them, they tend to last longer, be more intense. So if yeah, you experience so, them, they tend to drift off at some point more quickly. The, I mean, there's like a ton of hype behind mindfulness. The way I think of it is it's just helping emotion be proportionate to the situation. So think about human beings where the thing that sets us apart from animals is we can put ourselves mentally in a place we're not. So like, for instance, right now, I can be thinking of what I have to do at work tomorrow. And if I think what I have to do tomorrow is challenging in any way, I can feel anxious. So even though there's nothing anxiety provoking going on right now, me cognitively putting myself in a different place can then produce that emotional state. So all I think of mindfulness is we're just making a correction to having emotion be proportionate to the situation. So like think about the walk to work situation. You're walking to work, you're thinking about maybe how you have like six clients back to back, how that's going to be stressful, how you're not going to have enough time to do X, Y, Z. When you're thinking about something challenging, you get anxiety because anxiety is energy for a challenge. And there's nothing anxiety provoking on your way to work, or let's say there isn't this time. Mm -hmm. But because there's nothing anxiety provoking in front of you walking, you shouldn't feel anxious. Anxiety should not be needed in the moment. So all mindfulness is, is you're taking the focus away from thoughts that are creating the anxiety and you're moving your focus towards what's on, what's going on in front of you. And if what's going on in front of you is an anxiety provoking, then that anxiety is going to go down because the emotion is not needed anymore. Got it. So when you're more present focus and there's not the stress going on, you're, you're less the stress because you're not in a stressful situation. But if you are in a stressful situation, the mindfulness helps because it helps you prevent avoiding experience and get the adaptive change that you get from, from going through it. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, you know, when you're not in it, exactly. It, it just can help emotion be proportioned to the situation when you are, it's just going to correct all of those maladaptive processes that fuel it like the distraction or like the kind of worry and all that fun stuff. Mm -hmm. And for the people that say mindfulness is just a form of avoidance, what, what is your response to them? I would say a lot of people teach it as avoidance. You know, they'll say when your anxiety starts to get intense, use mindfulness to try to control it or make it go away. But ideally, it should be fully experiencing and accepting. So it's really the opposite of avoidance. So when I'm talking about clients redirecting from thoughts, I can say there's a fine line between mindfulness and avoidance in terms of that. But I'm not teaching avoidance in terms of like, don't have these thoughts. And because they're afraid of the thoughts in some way, I'm just saying, you can't control that initial thought showing up. But when it does show up, you're controlling whether or not you worry further into it. And all you're doing is you're choosing to take focus from being internal, stewing these thoughts, which are causing this emotional experience to external. And in doing that, you're not avoiding thoughts, you're just choosing to disengage from them. So that's kind of where those instructions come in of don't try to push them away, don't try to control them, just notice they're in the background in the back of your mind, as kind of the forefront is whatever your present moment experiences 
uh, in front of you. And like, I'll, I'll take a piece of paper and I'll draw like a spotlight kind of thing. So I'll put little like a dash line across it and I'll say, you know, here's the spotlight. This is just your focus of attention. So in your focus of attention, it should mainly be just what's in front of you in the moment. Now, kind of out of the spotlight, out of this main focus is going to be further attentional field. And with that, you're going to notice emotions, sensations, thoughts, like random sounds, stuff like that. And I can say, you know, what happens now is you start to feel anxious about something. So you take your spotlight from what's in front of you, and then you shift it over to the emotion. So that's kind of front and center. So I'm saying, all you want to do is shift that focus of attention back to what's going to be most productive. That doesn't mean you're not going to notice these other things. It's just that you're not putting your full attention to them, trying to control them. Got it. Um, and are there specific, like more concrete mindfulness techniques um, that you, you use? Like I've seen some people use where they take a bunch of pennies and put them in a jar and they have you analyze one penny for about a minute, put it in, shake it up, then analyze for five minutes to try and find your penny. Mm -hmm. uh, five, four, three, two, one, where that, that's more century, uh, things like this. Do you, do you do any of those sorts of things? I tend to, like, I think those are interesting exercises, but Everything I'm doing in, in session is I'm thinking to myself, how can this best generalize to the client's life? So while it's like a really interesting experience to like take a penny out to notice all the different crevices and all the different uh, kind of uh, physical characteristics and put it back in to see if you can find your penny again, my client's going to think, you know, why the hell am I doing this? Like, <laughs> how does this relate to my treatment goals. And it's a cool exercise. I think it's interesting. But what I want to do is just find a way to make this more applicable to the client's life. So I mean, what I'll do is I'll take a paper clip. And I'll put it on the desk in front of the client. And I'll say, Okay, you know, I want you to look at the paper clip. While you're looking at the paperclip, though, I want you to really be focused internally and I'll have them either worry or ruminate or criticize themselves. The reason I use a paperclip is I used to use, um, have the client just look out the window because I was like, oh, well, that's just going to replicate what's going to happen in their lives, like looking mm -hmm. at some kind of scene. But what I found is that because there's so much going on outside that they wouldn't get lost in their thoughts. So they would just be fully focused and what I want is the client to have the experience of getting caught up in thoughts again, noticing they're in that process, and, and then gently bringing it back. So what I found is a paperclip is a super boring object. After like 30 seconds of looking at it, your attention is going to start to wander. So I can have them look at the paperclip, take note when your mind's going elsewhere, and then just gently bring it back to noticing the physical qualities of the paperclip. And then afterwards, though, after kind of getting their perception of what happened, I want to make sure we're getting really explicit in how does this translate to life. So, okay, you're driving home from our session today. What's going to happen in your mind in the car? Oh, well, I might be thinking about the session or I'm thinking about what I'm going to make for dinner later. So then how can we apply the same strategy in the car? Well, I guess what would happen is let's say I find myself thinking what I have to do when I get home. I can notice I'm in my head. And then just bring my focus back to exactly where I'm driving, the road ahead of me, the different cars around me. So I want to be really explicit in like, how does this apply to your life?
Hmm. And um, I, I, you said it beautifully before, and I'm going to butcher it. You said something, mindfulness is hard to describe, so you have to experience. I, I forgot the exact phrase oh, that it's you like, used. It's like a, it's a simple concept that's difficult to describe or define. Perfect. So do you mind actually leading us through a small mindfulness uh, technique or meditation just so people that have never done it before, they could actually experience it? Yeah, certainly. So let's do, let's do the, um, the focusing on an object since we were just talking about that. So I'll have uh, so like for you, describe something that's in front of you right now. Yeah, I have, I have a pen here. Perfect. So what I would say is put that pen on like whatever, wherever the microphone's on. Okay. Got it. So like, I, I wouldn't want you to be touching it because that's going to add more sensory information. I want to make it as basic as possible. Mm-hmm. And let's say you're, if you're listening to this, find some kind of really simple object have it be in front of you, but don't be holding on to it. So what I want you to do is I want you to look at the object. But as you're looking at the object, I don't want your focus to really be on the object. I want your focus to be in your head. And I want you to start really worrying about something that's been concerning you. I mean, if you want to go to standard world events now, we can do some COVID stuff. We can do some uh, you know, racial unrest any kind of fun stuff like that. So again, your eyes are on the object, but your focus is really internally worrying, thinking about these stressful experiences. So get that going for a little bit. So I want you to kind of take a mental note of how intense your stress is now, zero to 10. And now what I want you to do is put your full focus on what's in front of you in terms of that object. So notice what that object looks like. So notice the shape of it. Notice the color. Notice how the light shines against it. So just put your full focus on what you're seeing in front of you, noticing all those physical qualities of that object. And as you notice that, your mind's going to go all over the place. So it's going to wander. Maybe you start thinking about that stressful experience. And every time that happens, you don't have to criticize yourself because that's just what our minds do naturally. Just notice that's happened and then gently bring that focus back to the object, noticing all the physical characteristics of it. And while you're doing this, you're going to notice different thoughts in the back of your mind because, again, we can't control what thoughts show up. But as those thoughts are in the back of your mind, you don't have to then shift focus to them. You can just let them be there. Let them come and go on their own without you trying to get involved in them, trying to control them as your main focus remains on that object in front of you.
And when you're ready, you can look up and let the exercise come to an end. And now take one last mental note of how intense that stress is zero to 10. So, you know, what was your experience doing that? Um, a few days. Well, number one, when you asked me to think about something I was worried about, definitely was able to bring up about eight, eight of 10 of, of stress, um, doing the mindfulness engaged pretty quickly in with, with the pen. And then my mind jumped back to thinking, uh-huh. Um, and then I realized that I forgot almost that I was doing the podcast. And then I started thinking <laughs> about that. Then I said, wait, redirect. So I redirected, uh, back to the pen and then, um, I, I got good at that. And then things sort of felt a bit calmer in my mind mm-hmm. and I got pretty focused and it got, got easier. And then it, you, you, you brought us back. Yeah. So I, I didn't keep track of the time. That might've been like three minutes at most. Typically I'll do five minutes with clients, but we can look at what was happening psychologically, emotionally. So by thinking about the stressful experience, and that's what happens day to day, is like we're looking at something, maybe you're watching TV, reading something, but we're not really fully focused on it. We're kind of internal analyzing something else. Now, again, if the content of what we're thinking about is stressful, we're going to get stressed because our body has no idea whether or not this is actually happening right now or it's just a thought. So you get that physiological experience by then shifting focus to a pen, you know, unless you were like stabbed in the eye with a pen at some point, you're not going to have some kind of anxiety relationship to a pen. It's going to be a neutral object. So because you're focusing attention on something that's neutral, emotionally, you should start going down to being neutral. So again, it's not anything that's magical. We're just cutting off the problematic process, which is that worrying about the stressful experience. And we're putting focus on something that's neutral. So then that emotional state isn't needed anymore. Hmm. And throughout the talk, we talked a lot about um, interspersed mindfulness with anxiety. Um, any, uh, any thoughts about how mindfulness, well, not thoughts, but how is mindfulness related to uh, depression or, or treating depression? So one mindfulness-based intervention is called mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, and it's specifically for recurrent depression. So for people who have recurrent depression, they'll notice those first signs of depression, and then they'll start thinking something like, oh, here it comes again. Like, this is like, how long is this episode going to last? I hate feeling this way. So the idea is to notice those first signs of depression, like emotionally, physiologically, And then instead of ruminating about it because you don't want it to be there, it's just noticing it's there and making sure you go about your day-to-day experience regardless of your emotional state. Because what tends to happen with depression is for the vast majority of times, there's some kind of event that leads to it. What I tell clients is, you know, depression is just stronger sadness. Sadness is an emotion that's there to tell us we've either lost something important or we're missing something important. So if some kind of thing happen, like, you know, now a lot of people are losing uh, jobs. So let's say you lose your job. If work is important to you, there's going to be sadness there. Now, for depression, you're going to feel sad. We're kind of physiologically built to pull back when we feel tired and kind of low energy because our brain thinks, hey, we don't have energy, we got to relax, we got to rest to build up that energy again. But the problem is, if the low energy is due to depression, pulling back 
One, it takes away any kind of positive experiences in your day-to-day life. And then it also allows more time for rumination. So you pull back, you don't have experiences that are meaningful. And then all you're thinking about is the problem. So for instance, maybe losing your job, or you're just thinking about how terrible you feel, which then just perpetuates that emotional state, making it worse and worse. So when I'm working with depression, I'm going to do the cognitive piece to get out of rumination and self-criticism. And then emotionally, I'm going to help them be more accepting of their emotional state, not trying to control the depression and making sure I can kind of decouple emotional state from behavioral state. So I want clients to feel depressed and do it anyways, which is a lot more uh, easily said than done. Yeah. And when I went to a talk about uh, mindfulness-based CBT, which you had mentioned, um, they were talking about what what had originally got them on this this uh, track of mindfulness was they were trying to um, prevent relapse of depression. And then they saw rumination as something that caused re- relapse into depression. So they mm-hmm. were trying to find something that was anti-ruminative, which was, exactly. which was mindfulness. Uh, d- does that hold true? Cause rumination you find across anxiety and depression. Do you think that holds true across the disorders that the an- being anti-ruminative helps oh, reduce definitely. anxiety and depression? Yeah. Like, I mean, I think anxiety and depression, it's, it's the same processes, really different content. So it's pulling back behaviorally depression, it's isolation, withdrawal, anxiety, it's avoidance. There's excessively self-focused attention. So it's on your emotional state. It's on whatever's happening cognitively. And then there's an over-analysis for anxiety. It's worry for depression. It's rumination. And really, it's going to be the content of that thinking that's going to result in either anxiety or depression. If it's about some kind of risk or not being able to cope, you're going to get anxiety. If it's about kind of negative thoughts about yourself, about your future, about the world, other people, you're going to get depression. Mm-hmm. And like what I'll tell people is, you know, here's where you are. Here's where you want to be. What we want to do is close this gap behaviorally. So it's figuring out how do I get from here to here? Let's make a plan and let's take action. All rumination is, is you're trying to close this gap cognitively. You're just in your head thinking. But because you're not actually taking action, nothing changes. So you just get stuck in the cycle. And that's kind of where the acceptance piece shows up too. So you can either take action to get here. Or you can just accept this is where you are. And when you accept, it closes the gap too. And when the gaps close, you don't go through this analytical thought process. I, I absolutely love the way that, that you described that. And I'm going to start using that, <laughs> using that too. Take it, take uh, it. I, I am. Um, and with changing your behaviors, it's one of like, it's like a fast track to change deeper beliefs. Yeah. So... With CBT, I think of it as just, we're just trying to correct maladaptive learning. Um, So it could be like, I get trauma cases every now and then. And for them, let's say they have a really abusive childhood. So they may learn, I can't speak up. I have to avoid because if I do speak up and I do confront people, I'm going to get hurt Mm -hmm. um, physically, emotionally. Now, that belief developed because of what was happening at the time. And it actually was probably beneficial at the time. But let's say you're holding that same belief and it shows up at work where you're not talking to your boss about certain things because you have this like kind of gut reaction like he or she is just going to, you know, jump at you and hurt you in some way. So 
the be what I tell clients is for most of us, behavior change comes before emotion change. So you don't really get that emotional feeling like things are different until your behaviors change and you've had that experiential learning to make it different. So, you know, with CBT, you can just focus on the belief stuff, but it tends to be a lot more powerful when you get the cognitive change from behavioral change. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I try my best to ask you and pick your mind about mindfulness, but is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you think it's important for listeners to know? Mm. No, I think we got it pretty good. I, okay. I, I can remember. Yeah. Um, so if people want nothing else, I'm, I'm, I don't have much going on up in my head. Right <laughs> we, we drained it all out. <laughs> exactly. Uh, that's, that's it. <laughs> um, so if people want to find you, find uh, what you're up to and you work at the Beck Institute and learn more about the Beck Institute, where, where do they go to do this? You can go to the website. It's www.beckinstitute.org. And I mean, I, 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 I don't have any social media presence whatsoever, but <laughs> like uh, we, the Beck Institute has like uh Twitter account and all that fun stuff. Um, so, you know, we do different things. Like we have a newsletter as well, where the clinicians will like, I'll write a blog post about something and we'll post it to our newsletter and we might post it on uh, the social media accounts. So yeah, beckinstitute.org. And you know, we got a newsletter, we got a bunch of information about the organization. So the, the organization, we're a nonprofit. And our mission is improving lives worldwide through CBT. And we do it through, we have a clinic. So one of the things I do is I see clients every day. And then we also do training. So we have, well, they used to be in-person trainings. Now through this year, at least we're doing them through webinars. Um, so it's kind of like a live training through a webinar. Hopefully next year we can get back to in-person trainings. And then we also have online courses where um, they're through a, an organization called PsychWire. Yeah. And I did those online courses through PsychWire and I thought they were absolutely, absolutely amazing. And, and you can see um, Rob talk a lot on those courses if you actually want to hear, hear more uh, from him. And you have some uh, mindfulness trainings workshops as well, right? I, you, I think you said like there's three or four of them. Yeah, there's, I, I made four brief mindfulness trainings. I think each one might be about two hours and they just talk about one's just an introduction to mindfulness and the other ones are specifically how to integrate mindfulness into a CBT framework. So like a lot of the stuff I talked about today was we're not doing this pure mindfulness and that's kind of everything. We're finding ways to tailor mindfulness to get at these maladaptive beliefs and processes. And yeah, mm -hmm. um, you know, for our anxiety disorder course, I get to be, I'm the lovely therapist and you get to see me and all my awkwardness, uh, talking to people in a, in a role play. Yeah, exactly. Um, and just to specify that the online trainings are for clinicians that want to learn more about CBT and they could get CE credits for, um, I'm not sure for all the workshop, but definitely, definitely many of them. Um, yeah, and then, it's then for all them. Oh, for all, even the mindfulness ones. Oh, I actually, had, I have no idea. Yeah, see, yeah that's yeah. why I, I wasn't sure either. Um, and then the non-for-profit piece, what are you guys doing with your non-for-profit non work? Yeah, we have, um, one of them actually is we give scholarships to therapists um, to attend trainings who either don't have the funds themselves or like one of the scholarships we give is for people who work with veterans or who work with mm. uh, clients in the military. And 
we have a fundraising arm. There's probably information on our website about it. You know, there's like a donation uh, page, but yeah, it's it's really just we're taking in donations so we can help people with scholarships uh, attend our trainings who might not be able to afford it otherwise. Okay. And I will um, put a link to the, to the non-for-profit part and the donation and, and the other works uh, that you're doing just in case anybody is um, interested in that. Cool. Thanks. And, and I know psychologists are going to recognize, recognize the name Beck, uh, but for people that aren't familiar, why, why Beck Institute? Yeah. So Aaron Beck is the founder of CBT. So it was, I think the fifties or sixties. So him and then Albert Ellis kind of came up with CBT theory independently. And then for, uh, Dr. Aaron Beck, he came up with cognitive behavioral therapy and Albert Ellis did rational emotion, emotive behavior therapy. So he was really the founder of CBT. And then Right now, uh, his daughter actually is the president of the Beck Institute, uh, Dr. Judith Beck, and she's kind of carrying on uh, all the work that that he's done. Actually, when um when I first started working at the Beck Institute, uh, Judy was like, "Hey, Rob, you want to have lunch with me and my dad?" <laughs> so I go, You're like, okay. <laughs> so so I, I sit down at the table with the two of them. And then uh, Dr. Aaron Beck says, Oh, Rob, I heard that like you, you did a lot of mindfulness work in your graduate work. And that's something you do a lot in treatment. I was like, Oh, yeah, definitely. He goes, Okay, so let's role play you be my therapist. I'm an anxiety disorder client, I want you to show me how to use mindfulness. No pressure like, at <laughs> all. No pressure at all. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, it's yeah. crazy. How'd it go? I went as well as I could. <laughs> yeah, we don't have to talk about it. Um, and then, am I right that uh, Judith Beck has a, a book coming out? Yeah, so she, it's really the main text in learning CBT, something called Cognitive Behavior Therapy Basics and Beyond. So right now it's in the second edition, but she just finished the third edition. I think it's coming out this fall. And we actually have another book uh, Book coming out through our organization on something called recovery-oriented cognitive therapy. So I can uh, it, it's mainly for working with people with chronic mental health conditions. Uh, specifically, they developed it initially for uh, like kind of chronic schizophrenia or psychotic mm -hmm. disorders. And that that's a, that's coming out in the fall as well, I believe. That's a great plug because I have Paul Grant um, coming on the show uh, in, in a in a couple of weeks, so he'll oh, be perfect. talking about this exact book. So, so thank you for that. Yeah, there um, you go. Okay, and then I could also when Basics and Beyond Three come out, I'll add that link on, but I'll connect a link to the second edition, which is which is the current one out now, which is on Amazon, and you can find you know most places where you buy books. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It was really a pleasure having you. Uh, definitely learned a ton about mindfulness. And I'm sure the people that are listening that had questions on what it is or therapists that are listening to say, well, how do I integrate this more with the therapy that I'm doing? I, mm -hmm. I think that they got a really good uh, bundle of information on how to do that. Well, thanks a lot. And thanks for having me on.